Good morning. My name is Josie Walker, and I'm so excited to be up here. Um, along with myself is my husband, Alex, and our three girls, and we have been attending New City for a little over a year. So we will be coming out of the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I will begin. I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help. And I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. But I am sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready, as I have been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all. I had told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all the believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. This is the word of God to you today. You can be seated. Thanks, Josie. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to, to meet, I hope uh, we'll get a chance to do that in, in the lobby um, after church today um, or sometime really soon. Um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to start by telling you guys a story um, about some of my favorite people that you'll never get a chance to meet because they've gone on to, to glory. Um, but it's actually Janet's grandparents. Uh, we call them... Uh, Papa and, and Grandma, they were Glenn and Barbara Townsend, and uh, they were what we call country folks. Uh, they lived in Iron Station, North Carolina. You probably don't know where that is. It's near uh, Lincolnton. Um, it's just, it's hardly a town at all. It's just, but it's kind of a, a very rural place, uh, and, and they lived there the whole time that, that I knew them. And they had a little plot of land, and one of the things I loved about them is that they grew a garden. 
And it wasn't just your ordinary uh, garden and a little box. This was a massive uh, garden. They had a, a tiller, and, and every year uh, they would till that soil, and uh, Papa would study the weather, and he would buy the seeds and choose which food he wanted to grow. Actually, I think it was what food Grandma wanted him to grow. She was really in charge of that household. And then he would carefully plant each seed, and he knew exactly which things to plant next to each other, that you couldn't just jumble them up, that corn belonged in, in one place and beans in another and tomatoes in another. And so he would carefully plant each seed in the right place, and then he would meticulously water each one of those plants, and he would weed, and then he would watch, and he would wait. And at the right moment, he would harvest the miraculous food that came out of the ground. Isn't that a miracle? It really is if you stop and think about it. If you've seen a seed, we rarely plant things from seeds anymore. You know, we go to Lowe's and buy the little plants that are already half grown. But if you start from a seed, you're like, what in the world? How is food going to come from this? How am I going to feed my family with this? It's really a miracle. But he would know the right moment to harvest each thing. And, and what a harvest it was. It was squash and corn and beans and potatoes and tomatoes and peppers and collard greens. And I'm getting hungry just telling you about that. Um, but it didn't stop there. You see, Grandma would take all that uh, fruit of the earth and she would turn that food into a feast. And that's where I came in. This was my job, was to show up as an eater. And I enjoyed that job. And uh, we would be invited all the time, but the memories I, I have are, are the memories of holidays. And they lived in a very simple home. They, they weren't people who had a lot of money or resources. You would probably call them poor by today's standard, but they didn't live that way. Because when you went to their house, the table would be laid out, and it would be a beautiful table, and it would be a full table, and they were the kind of people that would invite, not just the people they had to invite to Thanksgiving um, by obligation, you know what I mean? There's, there's those people that we feel obligated um, to have Thanksgiving with, but they would invite everyone. They would invite family, and they would invite friends, and, and it would be a two-full house and a two-full table. But here's the thing is that I realize, as I think back on that memory, is that that table was the reward of all that hard work. That, that full table that, that really was a love feast. Because it wasn't just about eating and getting out of there. It was about this experience of community and, and joy and love. And there was laughter and there was conversation and there was connection. There was life. It was a full table. We would leave with full bellies, but we would leave with fuller hearts. And to me, when I think about that image of Papa and Grandma's table, what I think about is that that's a picture of generosity, isn't it? It's a picture of what generosity looks like. Because sometimes I think we have to take these abstract concepts, the, these words that can produce different kinds of negative emotions in us, and, and we have to imagine what is a picture of generosity? What does that really look like in real life when it's lived out, when someone's generous to us? What does it look like? And as I thought about that, I thought about the image of that table and realized the great reward of generosity is the giving of our resources, our time, and our energy, and our money, or whatever we have for something greater than all of those things put together. Well, I wonder this morning how you feel 
as we begin talking about and we continue talking about this word, generosity. Janet and I shared a little bit of our stories with, with money last week, with the concept of genera- uh, generosity last week, and, and, and we acknowledge that uh, we approach this word and this topic from different stories, from different places. And so for some of you, you may hear that word and, and it may start to b- produce uh, anxiety in you as you hear that. Of, of what are people going to expect of me in that? Others of you may resonate with my story, with my image of, of the table, and you may begin to get excited about that. I don't know where you are, but I, I think it's important that as we begin to have this conversation with each other this morning, that we be honest with ourselves of, of how am I feeling. And secondly, I, I want to invite you to start thinking as I'm talking, what is your image of generosity What's a particular time, circumstance, place? Who are the people that bless you with their radical generosity? And maybe for you, that's not, you know, a Thanksgiving table in Iron Station, North Carolina. It's, it's something else. But, you know, I want to invite you to, to make it personal today. Uh, think about what is your image of generosity and how do you feel as we begin talking about that? And I just want to encourage you to be first real with yourself in those things. Last week, we talked about uh, this idea that we're going to give really practical teaching uh, it, last week and this week on generosity of how to be generous. How should we think about being generous as Christians? And we said there's going to be five P's of generosity just to be able to remember those. And last week, we covered two. The first one, probably in my estimation, the most important is that we be prayerful. Number one, we talked about that, you know, all work as Christians, all of our Christian life flows out of our prayer life, doesn't it? That we begin by giving ourselves to God and that when we pray, it, the real work of prayer, the, the efficacy, the reason that we pray is that prayer changes us, doesn't it? It changes us in our hearts So we're prayerful. Secondly, we talked about the idea that just really practically speaking, we have to prioritize uh, our giving, that we have to make it a priority in our life. It isn't just going to happen. It has to be highly intentional. And so we're going to continue, and we're going to continue looking at uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 9 that Josie read for us today. And uh, just to remind us and give us a little context of, of what we're talking about. So Paul is, you know, the apostle who met Jesus, um, not during his earthly ministry, but he met Jesus uh, on the road to Damascus after Jesus was already resurrected, and he had a miraculous encounter, and Paul's life was radically changed, and he became an apostle, which is a messenger um, of the good news, to take the good news outside of the Jewish faith to the Gentiles, to the broader Roman world. And so a big part of, of what that work looked like was he sent letters because he couldn't, you know, go to all these places all the time. He went to a lot of them, but he could only be in one place at one time, and there was no such thing as the internet. So he couldn't send emails, and he couldn't text. And so he sent letters instead to be read, um, to encourage people, and to tell them uh, about the good news, and to encourage them uh, to live a life congruent with this good news of Jesus. And so he writes this letter to the church in Corinth. And the chapter that we're looking at this morning, what's happening in the background is that uh, the church in Jerusalem is very poor. And remember, Jerusalem is where the Christian faith began. 
That, that was the place where, you know, the, the ministry of Jesus on earth ended with his death and resurrection happened in that ancient city. It, it's also the place that we read about in Acts chapter 2 that uh, where Peter stood up and he proclaimed the good news of Jesus at the temple. They think that happened on the steps of the southern side of the temple. And we remember that there's that day, the day of Pentecost, as Peter was proclaiming the good news, over 3,000 people in one day uh, started following Jesus. And so there's this explosion of the Christian faith that happened in Jerusalem. But we know that many of those Christians, most of those Christians were very poor. And we know that pretty much right away they were persecuted. Remember, the Romans who had just killed Jesus were still there. And you remember that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders who were opposed to Jesus, they haven't gone anywhere either. So now you've got this exploding church, this growing group of Jesus followers in Jerusalem, but they're living under a lot of persecution and, and they're already living under a lot of poverty. And so the rest of the churches, as the church grows in the Roman world, in the Gentile world, um, start to give money. Paul collects an offering that he would take this offering to support the church in Jerusalem. And so that's what we're reading about in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you remember, he's talking to the church in Corinth and encouraging them to participate, to be generous in giving to the church in Jerusalem. And he gives an example, the church in Macedonia. He says, look at our Macedonian brothers and, and see the way that they've been generous and use them as an example. So we're going to pick up where we left off. And um, I'm just going to read each section of scripture and then talk about, you know, what is it that Paul's trying to teach us about being generous um, in each of these sections. So we're going to begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. But I am sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready, as I have been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed not to mention your own embarrassment if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I had told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. There's a lot we could unpack here. But the main thing I want you to take away from this text is that our giving must not only be prayerful and prioritized, but it also must be planned. Paul says in verse 3, be sure you really are ready. So you're being invited to participate in giving to something of the kingdom of God. Be sure you really are ready. What we read here is that giving is a process. So it's this process of collecting these funds, and it's inviting people in to be a part of this process. And so Paul says, I know that your heart is ready to give, but here's the question. Is your wallet ready also? And that's a question for us this morning as well. I think most of us want to be generous people. I mean, you don't run across many people that just like have an aversion to generosity. We encounter this every day, every place we go, don't we? Like now you go to the supermarket and what do they ask you when you're checking out? Do you want to round up? Do you want to round up? Do you want to be generous? That always gets me. Whoever came up with that is a genius. 
because like you're standing there, you're a captive audience, you've got your card out, you're spending like $250 on groceries, you know you bought a lot of stuff that you don't really need, and the cashier is looking at you and go, you know, do you wanna spend a dollar to uh, support orphans or to support, you know, some cause? And I mean, what kind of person am I to say no to that in that moment, right? It's a captive audience, it's a genius move. But, you know, in our culture and, and people who don't know Jesus, right, this is a value in our culture. We, sh- we know we should be generous by nature. And so most of us, I assume, want to be generous, and yet our lack of planning to be generous prevents us from doing so. Why is that? One word comes to mind when I think about, like, why we're not able to be generous, why our hearts are willing but our, our wallets are not ready, and it's because we don't have margin. We don't have margin. There's this dynamic, especially um, in Western culture, is that the, the, the goalpost for our lifestyle just keeps moving, doesn't it? Like as we make more and more money, we don't, it's very rare that we say, I'm good. I'm good in the house I have. I'm good with the car I have. I'm good with the dining room table I have. What's the temptation? Is that we make more and what do we wanna do? spend more. We want to increase our lifestyle. And so it's so easy for our goalposts to keep moving. That's fact number one. Fact number two is that we live in a culture that is fueled by debt, is that we're invited constantly to take on more and more debt. And I don't know what your story with debt is. Um, I can tell you personally that Janet and I have had a very painful story with debt. Uh, one of the first things that happened when I went into the, the military uh, as, as a young man, I was 21 years old, Janet was 22 when we got married, and uh, we didn't make a lot of money. I think my first year in the Army, I made $32,000 a year before taxes. Um, fortunately, we lived in Columbus, Georgia, and it was pretty cheap down there. Um, but it was, it was tight, and, and I remember that there was all these people right away that wanted to give me credit cards. And, and, and guess what I did? I signed up, and I got credit cards, and even though I should have known better, but I did it, and and we got ourselves in a mess, and I wish I could tell you that I learned that lesson in my early 20s and never repeated it, but that that's happened to us a few different times in our life where we just, we took on too much debt, and, and then we found ourselves in a place where we didn't have any margin. And even when we made more money, even when God blessed us with more, we still didn't have margin to be generous. And so I don't know what your story um, with margin, your story with lifestyle choices, your story with debt looks like, but here's the thing, is I know that those topics can carry so much shame for us. That we don't wanna talk about it because we feel ashamed that, that please don't look and see what kind of debt I have. You know, please don't look at the choices I'm making about my lifestyle. And I think that's a big reason why in our culture, the topic of money and generosity and debt and all these things is, is very private. Like, we're like, well, that's, that's a very private thing. We don't want to talk about that. Um, and I think it's because we, we have a lot of shame um, around these, these areas. So I just want to speak that to you guys this morning and say, well, no matter where you are, you're not alone. You're not alone. And, and that's why we're talking about these things, because here's the deal. The goal is in Jesus is to be free, is to be free. 
All right, so what we have to do is we have to figure out, um, do we have margin for generosity? And if the answer is no, then what we need is a plan. We need a plan. And, and, and we need different kinds of plans based on where we are. And so for some of you hearing this today, you know, your, your plan may not first be um, to make a decision on what you're going to give. Your first plan may need to be, like, how am I going to get out of debt? What is that going to look like? And that needs to be a choice that you make. And for some of you might say, I need help with that. I don't know how to do that. I, I, I don't want to walk alone in that. And, and if, if, if that's you, I'm just going to give you an action step right now on the little connect card that you have. I want you to put your name on there and just say, hey, I'd be interested in, in a class about finances and, put, and turn that in. Because we didn't enter into this two-part series thinking that we were going to do uh, finance training. But last week, I talked to so many people who came up to me and said two things. Either said, hey, I'm a finance professional and, and I love helping people think about money, think about getting out of debt. If you have a ministry to do that, I'd love to help. That was one group of people. Another group of people is that multiple people came up to me and said, Are, do we have any training? Is there anything that we're going to do because I need help? And so that's a next action step. If, as you're hearing this, if you're like, Gabe, I don't have margin. I feel a ton of shame. I'm living in debt. I don't know how to get my way out of it. All you have to do is fill out that card and say, hey, I'm interested in a finance class, and, and we're going to do it. And I guarantee you we're going to have enough people to have a class. The second thing is there, there may be a group of you that are like, you know, you're not in debt. Um, you do actually have margin, but you don't have a plan to give. And I think most of our culture doesn't have a plan to give. You know, mo most of the way that giving happens is, and this is another genius move, the, uh, at Christmas time, the most famous Christmas giving thing ever, the Salvation Army Santa Claus, right? There's a guy that dresses like Santa Claus with a big bucket outside Walmart. And as you're coming out, what is he doing? He's saying, hey, like, will you give, give a gift to the Salvation Army? Let's put something in there. But is that planned giving? No, that's like in the moment giving, like whatever spare cash you have, change you have, let's put it in there. And I think so many of us think about giving in that way. I'm going to be generous, but I'm going to be like just in time kind of generous. But that's not the kind of generosity we're talking about. What we're talking about, what Paul is talking about, is he's saying, hey, like, I want you to think about a planned gift. Because if you read the text, it's clear that they've had multiple conversations about this collection for the church in Jerusalem, and that they've talked about it multiple times, and that at some point, the Corinthians have actually, you know, made a promise and said, hey, we're going to give. And so he's just following up and saying, hey, be ready, I'm coming to collect that right now. So what's your plan for giving? And again, if you don't have one, I don't want you to feel ashamed. I don't want you to feel less than. I want you to hear, hey, I've been there too. And we want to help you do that. And again, if you don't know how to do that, if you feel lost in that, you can fill out the connection card and say, hey, I'm interested in the finance class because that will be part of what we're going to cover with that. Um, you know, the more planned you are now, the freer you're going to feel later. And that's just the reality. And a really practical step for everybody is I just want to talk about um, the word budget, which, uh, again, when I hear that word, if you heard my story last week, um, I hear the word budget, and I'm like, I seize up a little bit. And I'm like, I don't, I don't like that. That feels constraining to me. That feels like failure to me. 
But here's the deal is that budgeting is just being intentional with our money. It's just making decisions before we spend and before we earn and, and saying, hey, here's what I want to do with the resources that I'm going to have. And so uh, the first thing is, if you don't have a budget, I want to just encourage you to make a budget. And that's just something that Janet and I have learned. We've been married 25 years. We failed tons in that. Like if you did a graph of like years that we succeeded and years that we failed, it would be like this. But praise God, we're in a season now where I think we're old enough and we've been hurt enough that we've learned. And so we're in a season now where every year that's just something we do. And, and we don't have a fancy thing. We just do it on Google Sheets and, and we put all of our income on there and we decide all the categories of money that we're gonna spend. But here's the thing is we always put our giving first. We see what we're making and we decide and we pray. We're like, God, what do you want us to give? And we put that number first and then whatever's left over, that's our starting point for the rest of the budgeting process. And that's just like, not a complicated thing, but it's a big deal and it's an easy way to think about a plan. Margaret, Margaret Thatcher said this, no one would have remembered the Good Samaritan if he didn't have any money to be generous with. And so when we think about planning, what we're talking about is being free that we would be able to bless other people and to participate in the story that God is writing in the world with the resources that we've been given. Okay, so we've learned that we need to be prayerful, that we need to prioritize our giving, um, that we need to plan our giving, and then we're gonna move to, uh, in our text, verses six through nine, and um, look at what that has to say about our generosity. Verse six, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. And so as I hear this, of course, I love this language. If you think about my first story of Papa and his garden and all that in the beginning. I love this agricultural language when it comes to money because it just invites us into thinking about money in a whole different way of we're not talking about banks and we're not talking about dollars. We're not talking about investments. We're talking about growing things, which is such a powerful image, I think. And I think verse six really invites us into this question, where are your eyes focused when it comes to what you have. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Why do I say this is about where our eyes are focused? Because that image of, of one who has seed and, and, and then is planting the seed, right? What's he focused on? It says he plants generously and, and then what happens, he will get a generous crop. And so what we see is that in this image, his eye is on not the seed, it's on the harvest that's coming. And, and what we see is that there's, there's some, the amount of seed that we plant, right, is proportional to the amount of harvest that we reap in the end. But I think so many of us, when we think about our resources and our money, what do we think about? 
We, we think about how much we have, right? We think about the seed that we have. In, in this image, the seed is our money. It, it's what we have in our pockets, what we have in our bank account. And what we do is we fixate on that. And, and, and we pour over that, and, we're, and, and if you think about a farmer looking at his hands and saying, I only have this much seed, and start to have anxiety about that, and start to say, I'm going to keep the seed, like, it becomes a ridiculous image, doesn't it? It's like, no, why do you have seed in your hands? It's not that you could look at the seeds and keep counting the seeds and keep thinking about that and keep thinking about how you could preserve the seed. No, because a farmer understands the seed is for a purpose. That a seed cannot do what it's supposed to do until it's planted. And then his eyes aren't fixed on the seeds anymore. It's focused on the harvest that's coming. And so the invitation is that as you think about your money, to make it a very personal, and that's our, our next P, it's a very personal decision that we say, how, how much am I of the seed that I'm given, how much of the resources that God gives me am I going to choose to sow into the kingdom of God, into things that will reap eternal reward? Did you know that everything else we spend money on is going to fade away? Everything. That's what the scriptures teach us, that, that when we, we buy clothes, what happens to our clothes? They, they rot, right? Eventually, they don't last. They wear out. They get holes in it. Our, our cars, right, one day will be in a junkyard or somebody else will be driving it. One day, even a new house is, is going to get torn down and become rubble, become nothing. Like all of our prized material possessions will be nothing in the end. But the invitation in this image is that as God gives us resources, we have this opportunity to make a very personal decision and decide, you know, how much do I need to keep and how much do I need to sow and invest? And that should keep my eye on the harvest and the reward that's coming. Verse 7, each one must decide in your heart how much to give. This is a very personal decision. I just want to talk about this for a minute because... Um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of language in the church around 10%. And, and here's the deal with 10% is that I, that's, I'm not against 10% or tithing or anything like that. But, but personally, you know, there's one problem with it is that in the Old Testament, if you add up all the tithes and offerings that the Hebrew people were commanded to give, it's way more than 10%. It's actually 26% that they were supposed to give. But the other problem with it is, is that if you hear 10% and you're a person sitting here in the room and you're saying, Gabe, I have no margin, I have no ability to give, and giving away 10% of my income feels incredibly impossible, then if we throw out a 10% number that isn't something that Jesus said, then what we feel is shame. And we think, well, I'm failing, I'm not doing it right. But instead, the teaching of the New Testament is that we should be radically generous as God has been radically generous to us. In verse 7, you must decide in your heart how much to give. And, and what we learn here in this next part of the verse is that it's really not about the amount that we give. It's the way that we give it. And I'll use the word posture. It's our posture as we give. He says, don't give it reluctantly or in response to pressure. So, so don't give it with a heart that's like, I don't really want to do this, but 
you know, I feel pressure socially, I feel pressure in the church, I feel pressure in my family, that what he's saying is the, the way we give it, our posture as we give, is the important thing. But instead, he said, God loves a person who gives cheerfully, that God loves a person that gives cheerfully. So the question is, very personal decision, as you're thinking about your giving, as you're thinking about your generosity, what's your posture? What's your posture? As you think about giving, is it reluctant? Is it, I got my seed, I'm, I gotta keep it, I gotta hold on to it, I'm scared, I don't know, think I'm gonna have enough. Or is it, I feel pressured by, by Gabe, I feel pressured by the church, I feel pressured by the checkout person at Walmart, um, whatever it is. But he says, don't, don't give out of reluctance or response to pressure, but instead give in a cheerful way. Well, how do you get a cheerful heart if you don't have one? You, you can't make yourself be cheerful. I've tried. It doesn't work. And, and Janet, bless her, she's tried. You ever have that moment in your, in your marriage or when you're with your significant other and somebody's just grouchy and grumpy and you're like, you just, you just need to be happier, you know? You just need to be cheerful. You just need to get your act together. It doesn't work, does it? The way that we get a cheerful heart is we, we go back to that first P. We have to be prayerful. We have to ask God, God, give me a cheerful heart. God, give me a cheerful heart. Verse 8. What or who are you counting on to meet your needs? And I, I think um, Paul puts this here in, in this part of the text because he knows that as we're thinking about generosity, as we're thinking about the topic of money, so many of us begin to have a scarcity mentality that, that we think there's only so much of the pie that we, and we have to get what we can while we can and we have to hold on to it. And maybe that's you this morning, but, but he addresses that. And he says, what or who are you counting on? God will generously provide all you need, he says. Then you will have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. I don't know what your story with money is. I don't know what your story with God is, but you see, the God I know is a generous God, and he's a God who always provides. And if we had time, I could tell you story after story after story of the way that God has provided through the years in miraculous ways sometimes for our needs. And I believe that he'll do that as we move in faith. Because remember, the currency of the kingdom of God is not money, it's faith. And as we trust in him, as we think about our posture of giving, as we give cheerfully, what he promises is you will have everything that you need. All right, finally, uh, I want us to look at this idea that our giving is progressive, verses 10 through 15. For God is one who provides seed for the farmer and bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. You'll be enriched in every way so you can always be generous. And when we take your gift to those who need them, they will thank God and two good things will result. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. Okay, verse 10. What I want you to notice here is that God is on both sides of the giving equation. For God is the one who provides the seed for the farmer, and he's the one that provides the bread to eat. And this is, this is an upside-down kingdom, backwards world kind of way of thinking about our finances. 
Because the world says what about your finances? It says, it says, I earn it, right? I earn it. And then I decide what I'm going to spend it on. I protect it. I keep it. And then I enjoy it. And so all along the way, when it comes to money and the world's way of thinking, it's I, 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 is that I'm on the front side of it. It's not God who provides the seed. It's me. I earn it. And it's I who make decisions to keep it, invest it, be wise about it, spend it, whatever. And then I enjoy that. And I'm fully responsible all the way through with my story of money. But what the scriptures teach us is that it's not that way at all. Is that instead, it's God who provides the seed for the farmer and he's the one who provides the bread to eat. So what is it? It's God who provides in the beginning. He's the one that gives the means to have anything that we have. And, And then we are in the middle of that. We receive it and we steward it. We're entrusted with what we're given, but then at the end, we hand the outcome to God. And what a radical way of thinking about our money. What would change in your life if you began to think in the, about your money in that way? That it's not me that earns it by everything I do, me that controls it and keeps it, and me that enjoys it or suffers the consequence. But instead, what if it's true what Paul is saying? That it's God who gives What does it look like to have a posture of receiving from God that everything I have, that I deeply know everything I have comes from him and that my job is just to steward it, just to pray about it, to to be prayerful, to be uh, prioritizing things and, and to make good decisions. But in the end, I'm trusting God for the outcome of what happens as I do that work. You know, friends, I think it would be a lot more freeing if we thought about our finances that way. And what he promises is that he will provide an increase in your resources and produce a great harvest of generosity in you. And I have to address this because there's uh, something called prosperity gospel out there, which is a, a heretical belief that, that if we give, then God is somehow under an obligation to then bless us in return. And, and this is heresy. This is not truth from the scriptures. Because in that scenario, you become God, that you're the one in charge. But you see, the problem with that kind of teaching is that we didn't make the first move in the gospel, God did. And so now all our giving is a response to the inexpressible gift God gave to us through Christ. So what is he saying here? It's not prosperity gospel that like I'm going to manipulate God by giving and then he's going to give me even more and that it's really about me just getting more and more and more and me and being in control and manipulating God. No, instead what he's saying is that God wants to grow our heart of generosity, number one, and that number two, we rely on God to take care of our needs. And if we think about that, that's a very freeing idea. So what we learn is that we can trust God in our giving and our, so our last P is that uh, giving needs to be progressive. And I'm not talking about a particular political stance. So don't hear that if you have PTSD with the, that word. Um, instead, what I'm saying is that we need to think about always growing our capacity to be generous and give. That we never remain stagnant. That when we're following Jesus, we're always seeking to grow in our heart of generosity, that I'm never content with a percent that I'm giving 
Instead, I'm all the time coming to God and saying, man, you are the God who is incredibly generous. And so in response, I want to be generous too. God, what kind of generosity are you calling me to? And that as I live a life of faithfulness, God willing, that he matures me and that he makes me able to give more and more and more and more because I can be more satisfied with less and that I can be more postured to give away more that I have the closer that I get to the end of my life. And so it's a different vision for our life that we, we become progressive in our generosity and not progressive in our ability to accumulate because the world says success is to be progressive in your ability to accumulate wealth, that the person who's at the end of their life that has the most toys, that has the most in their bank account, that's the one who wins. But in the story of Jesus, that's not the way you win. In the story of Jesus, it's all about what happens in the formation of our heart that's reflected in our wallet, that's reflected in our finances, that's reflected in our decisions, that we would get to the end of our life, and that success wouldn't be how much we have, but how generous our hearts are. And so as a church, that's a vision for us individually. It's a vision for us collectively as well. I know that's a lot, but I just want to challenge us and, and encourage us in these five things that we would be prayerful and prioritized and planned and, and personal and progressive as we're thinking about our giving. And um, I want to kind of go back to this vision as a way of concluding this vision of, of table that I started with. And, and I picked that image intentionally, that, that image of Papa and Grandma and their, their table and, and that being a picture of personal generosity of some of the most generous people I've ever known who were some of the poorest people I've ever known as well, but who gave of themselves and gave of their resources that they might bless other people. And what a beautiful vision. But I also want to zoom out for a minute and invite you to the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. Because you see, in the very beginning, the picture is a table. The Garden of Eden is a table. Have you ever thought about that? It, it, it's God himself with Adam and Eve, the very first people, and, and he provides everything they need. And guess what? There was no such thing as an economy in the Garden of Eden. Have you ever thought about that? An economy is just the ways and the systems that we have to use in our fallen world to make sense of scarcity, that there's not enough to go around. But in the Garden of Eden, there was no such thing as scarcity. There was abundance. And so what you see is a table of abundance that God provided everything that they needed and more that they had no idea that they had a need. And that's the way that the story of the world began. And that showed us the heart and the character of God. But then sin entered into the world. Scarcity entered into the world. Economics entered into the world. But there's a different story coming on the other side of history. And the image that we're given in the book of Revelation is also a table. It says it's a wedding feast of the Lamb. That, that one day after King Jesus comes back and makes all things new and all the saints are resurrected, that we're invited to a table that will be a wedding feast and in that space, at that table, just as in the beginning, it will be a table of abundance where there will no longer be need, where there will no longer be scarcity, where there will no longer be a need for economics, 
for managing scarce resources. There'll be no more anxiety or fear or trepidation around money. There'll be no money because we won't have need for it. And so the space we find ourselves now, brothers and sisters, is we are in the space of the here and not yet of the kingdom, that Jesus has broken into the darkness of the world and that we are a people in exile and we're waiting for him to come in fullness. We're waiting for the wedding feast of the lamb. And so when we're invited into biblical generosity, guess what it is? It's an invitation to participate in the coming kingdom, a way of reminding the world that all the brokenness of money and finances and scarcity will not be one day. And that as we're generous, it's not just about meeting needs, it's about proclaiming the good news of Jesus, proclaiming the true story of the world, that as we sow seeds, as we give ridiculous amounts, as we trust in God, not in our pocketbooks, that in doing so, we point the way to the one who is coming to make all things new in the end. Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray together as we close. Lord, we thank you that you're a generous God. We thank you, Lord, that you've broken into the darkness of the world. We thank you, Lord, that you're inviting us to be a generous people. Lord, and I, I pray for myself and, and I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room today. Lord, that you would speak into the, this part of our story, our, our story with the things that we have in, in, in our money and our finances in particular. And Lord, I pray that you would meet each of us in, in that part of our story, that you would speak to us, that you would move us, Lord, in wisdom to show us the next steps of what we can do to become a more generous people, that we would be free in you and that we would be a blessing to the world and that as we bless and as we experience that freedom, that we would point the way to your kingdom that's coming in fullness. Lord, thank you for the way that you give life to us. Help us to receive it and go and do likewise. In Jesus' name, amen.